together. As we go to prayer, just a couple of verses found in Psalm 109 this morning, and I think that wherever you are, whatever you've brought in, sort of in your heart, just the condition of your life this morning, there's something here for each one of us. The psalmist says, with my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord, and in the midst of many I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. And what I think is so beautiful about that and, and, and just expresses, uh, we've had this theme of redemption and forgiveness and grace and mercy and reconciliation to God. It's just been over and over through everything we've done so far and heard this morning. Then there's what that relationship means. It means that whether, as the psalmist says here, we come full of praise or full of need, he is here and ready to receive it. If you have come this morning and your heart is full, you have blessings to give thanks for, you have praises to offer as we're instructed in Scripture to come with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks in our heart to God, that you can give that to Him knowing that He gladly receives it, whether it's something from our perspective, small or great. But at the same time, this psalm says that if you've come carrying great need and sorrow and heartache, that He stands ready. This is a beautiful phrase. He stands ready the right hand of the needy, to rescue them and to save them from those who would judge their soul. Father, thank you this morning for the assurance that because of Christ, because all we have is Christ, and because Jesus Christ and what he did for us is enough, that we can come in any condition, Father, we can come uh, in, in, in any state of mind and heart, Father, whether again, whether we're full of joy or full of great need, Father, somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, maybe even hard to nail down exactly where our hearts are this morning, Father, we can come here knowing that we are not here by accident, we're here by your design. That you know the condition of our heart, you know the joys and the sorrows. Father, you know the things that everybody sees about us, and you know the secrets that no one else knows. And Father, what is so beautiful and wonderful, and again, the psalm and the songs we've sung this morning express it as you love us so much, and you just say, come to me. All who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest for your soul. Come to me with your praises and gratitude, Father, and you tell us in your word you'll gladly receive them. And all these things are possible because of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your redemption. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who loves us so very much. And Father, having been reminded of the cross, having been reminded of of what a beautiful thing it is to know Christ. And Father, that even when we stumble and fall and fail, we can come back and you'll receive us to yourself once again. Father, knowing that, I pray we can open your word now with confidence, not in ourselves, not in the one who preaches, Father, but in confidence that when we as the people of God come together as the people of God, as a church, and we open the word of God and call on the spirit of God, that you can do extraordinary things, that you can bring revival to our hearts. You can bring revival to our families and marriages. You can bring revival to our church and to our city and to our world. And Father, we're asking you to do whatever you want to do today, even as we sang a moment ago. Use our ransom lives in any way you choose. Father, let that happen in these moments together in your word. As we look at the old familiar story of Jonah, may you speak to us through your spirit in fresh and powerful ways. Come now, Lord, and guide us in truth. Come now and guard us from error as well. Come and deliver us from all the baggage we carried in. Father, help us just to let it all go, to lay it at your feet. And above all else, help us to see Jesus. Oh God, may we see Jesus this morning clearly as we go to your word. May we see the Lord Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And as we leave here in a little while, Father, we want to leave rejoicing. We want to leave uh, full of hope all, all over again, Father. Not just because we came to church, but because we met and sat at the feet of Jesus 
who did love us enough to lay his life down, and he then took it up again in victory. It's to him that we come, and it's to him and for him that we sing and praise. The name of Jesus above all names. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you're sitting, as always, we'll lay, uh, let the uh, boys and girls uh, head out for Children's Church. As they make their way out, I want you to make your way in to once more this morning, uh, just a couple of more times, to the Old Testament book of the prophet Jonah. We are in chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to look to finish out chapter 3, and then next Sunday, look at chapter 4, and just bring this whole book, this whole story again, um, as we look at it, to a conclusion and, and we're, I want to read the passage this morning's passage right away, so let me just remind you where we were, remind those of you who were here last Sunday and may have forgotten, inform those of you who were not here last Sunday and therefore have no idea exactly where we are in the story, because last Sunday we left off in our story of Jonah, our, our fresh look, as we're calling it, at, at the old familiar book of Jonah. We left off at sort of a pivotal point, not a conventional spot to stop, sort of if, if there, there are actually several cliffhanger in my opinion, cliffhanger moments in the book of Jonah, where if you're paying attention and reading uh, attentively, you, you should be asking what's going to happen next. We stopped at one of those points last Sunday where Jonah, this time, the word of the Lord having come to him a second time, Jonah, in obedience, went to the city of Nineveh, preaching the message that God told him to deliver. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And we stopped right there with Jonah proclaiming that message one day's walk, it says, into the city. And then we stopped. And as John suggested or indicated a couple of minutes ago, this morning we see how the people of Nineveh responded to and received that word of the Lord, that message from God about their future. Remember, we talked about the fact that Jonah didn't come in and condemn and rant and rave and chastise. He simply gave them a vision of where they were headed if they continued on the track that they were headed down. He said, you keep this up 40 days, it's all over. That's where we stopped last Sunday at the end of Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. This morning I'm going to begin reading in verse 5 down through verse 10, the end of the chapter. Where if you'll follow along in your Bible, this is what the word of God says. It says then, the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes, and he issued a proclamation, and it said, here it is, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let all men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You know, last fall, you may remember, hopefully you do if you were here with us, we spent a lot of time together as a church family on Sunday morning talking about revival, about what revival truly, biblically speaking, is, about what revival is not as well. And, and, and we really spent the majority of our time talking about what it means and what is involved and what it takes to cultivate as believers revival-ready hearts. We talked about revival. 
And at that time, as we went through that series, uh, the definition I offered you of revival uh, was as follows. And you don't need to write this down, but just as I say it, I want you to be able to read it as well, remind you what we mean when we talk about revival, biblically speaking, which is this, that revival is an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit not something that happens every day. It awakens the church, the people of God, like never before, to the majesty of God, to the supremacy of Christ, and to the power of the gospel, through which, here's the the upshot, the result, is that believers are transformed, unbelievers are saved, and society is reformed to the glory of God. And, well, we do not know whether before Jonah arrived in the city of Nineveh, there were any believers there already? Probably not. I think you'd agree with me if you were paying attention to what we just read, that that what happened in Nineveh in those verses checks the other two boxes, the other two outcomes, in a truly dramatic way. There may not have been believers other than Jonah there to be transformed, but unbelievers were saved. And their society was reformed to the glory of God. What I'm saying to you this morning as we get started is this. An entire city turned to the Lord. Think of it. An entire city turned to God. Perhaps, the Bible doesn't say for sure, but you certainly could. I think it'd be a safe assumption to say, perhaps it even happened in one single day. It's just as Jonah went one day's walk. He started preaching this message, and people began repenting and coming to God. And so for that reason, because we can safely say revival came to Nineveh, I would argue the following, that while the the story, the account of Jonah himself, the prophet, going into and out of the belly of the whale, is the miracle in the story that always gets the attention. It's the one thing people who know this story know about and know best. I would argue, as we look at the story this morning, that what we just read is the greater miracle by far. Greater than getting one man into and out of the belly of a great fish. The story of Nineveh's revival is the truly miraculous thing. And as such, this story, even just these six verses, offers us all sorts of things that we can gather and learn from and respond to and God can use in our lives. But specifically, for our purposes here this morning, what I want you to see, what I want to share with you from these six verses, is that what we just read, the story of Nineveh's revival, presents us today with a brilliant picture of what revival looks like, what revival, what God can do of what could be. And and specifically what I want to show you from that are at least five ways that we can tell from this story when you can know revival's the real thing. Whether God is doing it in a nation, whether God is doing it in a city, whether he's doing it in a local church, or maybe he's just doing it in your own heart, a work of revival. He does that. And according to this story, I see at least five signals, five signs, five ways you can tell revival is the real thing. And the reason I want to take the time to walk through them, to just sort of draw them to your attention, is that I believe once again, by the time we are done, what we see here will continue to magnify God's mercy. That of all the things we'll appreciate and be reminded of, our understanding and our our gratitude for his mercy will grow even more. So there's five things here I want you to see. How can you know when revival is the real thing? When God's God's mercy, his endless, relentless compassion and action has taken hold like never before, the first of which is this. Just taking them as always in the order that they come. The, The first way this story shows you can know revival is the real thing is that God's word is central. Number one, God's word is absolutely central to what's going on. Let me tell you something interesting about 
these six verses, something I'd never seen before until just a couple of days ago. And I think it's significant, and I'm glad I saw it, and it's this, that in the six verses, the story of Nineveh's revival, verse 5 through verse 10, not one single time does the name of God's servant Jonah appear. I think that's interesting. In fact, I think that's significant, that the main character for whom the whole book is named, without whom there would be no story to tell, The one who was God's messenger is invisible in the revival. In fact, I would suggest to you, he's not only invisible, there's a sense in which he is irrelevant to to the most miraculous part, the greatest movement of God in this story. Meaning this, that even though he was the messenger, as verse 4 says, look at it again in your Bible, he comes to town saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He was the messenger somehow, somehow, The citizens of Nineveh, those who heard his message, knew that it wasn't Jonah to whom they had to answer. Somehow they understood that through this man, God is speaking God's word. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the word of the Lord came through Jonah to the people, and somehow the people were figuring it out. That this guy is speaking for someone much greater. God was speaking, and it was he to whom they must answer. And that's huge, it really is particularly since so much, if you look around, and maybe I see this sort of thing more than you do just because it's sort of the water that I swim in myself, but, but so much of what we see in the, in the world and in the Christian subculture today that gets labeled revival. Oh, there's a revival that's breaking out in that place, in that town, in that city, in that part of the world. So much of what gets labeled revival, I have a hunch, may not actually be because it's always oftentimes so focused on a particular preacher or a particular place. We've got to go here to get the revival. Or, or it's focused on, on a certain pre-planned event. Or it's focused on certain, what are so-called, manifestations of the Spirit. And everybody there is doing this thing, and w- that's revival. Well, maybe it is, and maybe it's not. It's always focused on people and places and things. But the true revival is never about the messenger. It's always about the message. Now, revival needs a messenger. Somebody's got to stand up and speak. Someone has to be the human instrument through which God presents his message to the people. But true revival is always about the message. It is about the word of God getting to the people and then the messenger getting out of the way. All right? And I know this is true, and you should know it's true as well. Because even John the Baptist... Even John the Baptist, of whom Jesus, Jesus said this about him, maybe you remember this. Jesus said of John the Baptist, no one greater has ever been born from women than John the Baptist. There's been no greater preacher. He's the forerunner of Christ. Even John the Baptist, when Jesus walked up, said, he must increase and I must decrease. I'm stepping off stage. The word of the Lord has come. First way to know it's revival is God's word is central. God is the one getting all the attention. And and the point here really in in the middle of verse 3 is just that. That revival broke out when the people, in response to the word of the Lord, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, verse 5 says, then the people of Nineveh listened to Jonah? No. People of Nineveh believed in God. They heard the word of the Lord, and they responded to him. And the first way you know that revival is the real thing, that God is up to something special, is the word of God is central. Second, second sign moving from there, from the rest of verse 5, really down through about verse 7. 
a second sign or signal that revival is the real thing, that God is doing something special, is that spiritually speaking, and allow me to unpack this when I say it, the playing field is level. There is a level spiritual playing field when God is doing a work of revival. You know, today I think we would, one way to look at what happened in Nineveh, especially here in verses 5, 6, and 7, if it happened in our present day, and, and it could be televised or recorded somehow, we would probably consider what happened in verses 5, 6, and 7 to be must-see TV, right? Because of all the things that's happening. I mean, you just walk through these verses, and in one, in one sense you see that what happened in this middle part of the story was, was gripping, it was dramatic, Because the revival that comes, if you follow the path, it begins with ordinary people in the street because that's where Jonah was preaching. And it makes its way, perhaps again in a single day, all the way to the throne room of the king. Spread like wildfire. It's gripping and compelling and dramatic. There's also a touch of humor, though. I think it's hilarious, really, when you read it and you think about it in verse 7, where it seems like maybe just to make sure, this is the only thing I can come up with, maybe just to make sure all their bases are covered, they not only clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes, they not only call a fast for every man, woman, and child, they make sure the livestock are participating as well. Just cover them up. We want God to know we really mean it right here. And I think that would have been funny to walk around and see this all over town. It's like, we are going to cover every possible base. So it's gripping, and there's humor. It's also very convicting. It also sort of gets you right here when you realize how exhaustive, how comprehensive this work of God's Spirit was as well. You look at verse 5. It says, the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called the fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest down to the least. What's the point? The point is, this is the real deal. And one of the ways, one of the most significant ways you know it's the real deal, and and really where the mercy is magnified, the mercy of God most in this part of the story, is that everyone who heard the word of the Lord responded to it in the very same way. There's one gospel. There's one message. And there's only one appropriate response to it, and that is repentant So they're all, we're being shown here, what they're all doing is they're all putting on the same outward signs. That was not an uncommon thing in that day, sackcloth and ashes as a sign of repentance. But everybody did the same thing on the outside, which strongly suggests or indicates they were having the same spiritual interaction or interchange on the inside. They were humbling themselves before God. They were acknowledging and repenting of their sin. Everybody's responding to God's word the same way. And listen, that's the way the gospel always works. There's only one message. There's not a gospel for rich people and a gospel for poor people. There's not a gospel for Africa and a different one for America. It's the same message because we have the same problem. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one has, there are no inside tracks to the throne of grace. The rich and advantaged who live in wealthy cultures are not more likely or more blessed by God or more likely somehow to, 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 to get saved and, and, and to the contrary, to the other end of the spectrum, just because someone is poor and impoverished doesn't mean that somehow they're more likely. It's the same message because we have the same problem. And that's we need a savior. We need, as we sang, a redeemer, as Stuart reminded us, Redemption. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel does because the message, we've said this many times before, the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead, it is for everybody, say anyone. Anyone who will repent and put their faith in him. Level playing field. 
level ground at the foot of the cross. That's what the gospel does. It freely extends the same offer to all people, promising the same blessings every time. And we know it's the real thing here as well, because that's what it's doing. From the greatest to the least, man and beast, (laughs) they're all responding to the message of, of the Lord. So number one, the word of God is central. Number two, the playing field is level. Number three, here's where we begin to really drill down into what was happening here. A third way you can know that what God's doing, that the work of revival is, in fact, the real thing, is that the conviction of sin is specific. The conviction of sin is specific. You know, one of the, and I I know I've shared this with you before, One of the really, to me, significant lessons I've learned just through years of walking with Jesus and studying his word and trying to figure out what it means to live the Christian life, one of the lessons I've I've learned and that I'm mindful of most often when it comes to sin and guilt and when we, you know, when we fall short and we mess up is that Satan, and you've heard me say this before, Satan accuses in generalities. He's called the accuser of God's people. And he accuses in broad generalities, you're a failure, You're a loser. You will never amount to anything after all he has done for you. Satan accuses in generalities. The Holy Spirit, however, convicts in particulars. And and knowing the difference is huge because you got to know who you're listening to when you're getting those messages about guilt or heaviness or weight or sin. Are you being accused in generalities or are you being convicted in the particulars? So it's not, and the reason I say that or repeat that, that sort of life spiritual lesson is because it is not insignificant when verse 8 tells us, look at it, that both man and beast were covered with sackcloth. This is the proclamation of the king. And he says, And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way, and here's the key, key line, at least for us right now, and from the violence which is in his hands. Now, turning from violence is not a prerequisite of the gospel, all right, of getting saved. But in the process of responding to this message of repentance, the king singles that particular sin issue out, and there's a reason. Because one of the things we've learned going through Jonah, if you've been here, is that this city of Nineveh, and probably the reason, or one of the big reasons Jonah didn't want to go there, is it was one of the most violent, vicious cultures that's ever existed on the planet. This was an ISIS-like group of people in many ways when you read the way they dealt with their enemies and and those they were, were angry with, those they fought against. Vicious, wicked, bloody culture. Not a good place at all. And so I, I really believe, and I'm just going to set it before you, that another signal, this revival was the real thing, is that as they turn to the Lord in repentance, that's the thing, all right? We turn to God in repentance, we, we trust him, we respond to his word for salvation. But as they did that, what did God begin doing? He began addressing their specific sin issues. He got very, very specific about what he wanted them to do. And maybe in the moment that felt harsh. Maybe it felt overwhelming. Maybe it crushed them with guilt. I don't know. But I'm going to say at the same time, it was mercy for sure. It was mercy for sure. Because what it shows is this, and God feels the same way about me and you. Yes, he, was in the, say he had saved them, or he was in the process of saving the citizens of this great city. But in doing so, he was then also calling them to a new way of life. Now that you are mine, now that we have the big issue solved, we have been reconciled to God, eternity is secure. Let's talk about today. 
Let's talk about, he says, turn, and through the king, he says, turn from the violence which is in, his, in your hands. It's a very powerful metaphor. It's kind of, here's, here's our thing. Here's our sort of identifying sin or transgression. And through the king, God is saying, now, let's talk about rising and walking in newness of life. Let's talk about what it means to live for me, having been transformed. How do you live on the outside, having been changed on the inside? And you know, it makes me wonder, here's the question I've been grappling with since I saw that. What would it look like if God did the same thing for us? As a nation, as a city, as a church, in your own personal life, having come to Christ, God desires to do a work of, call it revival, of renewal. Here's my question. Where would the merciful pressure of God's conviction fall? To paraphrase verse 8, if he looked at your life, if he looked at our church, if he looked at our nation, what would he say, here's what's in your hands? You need to turn from it. What is it? And then if it was violent, without question, what is it? As I look at my life, I say, yeah, hey, you're mine, Aaron. You belong to me. I saved you through the blood of my son by grace through faith alone. But now let's talk about what's in your hands. And are you willing to let it go? And again, rise and walk in newness of life. What would he call us to turn away from? What would he call you to turn away from? Not because it makes him love you more, not because he loves you less because it's there, but because he has a better plan for you than the plan you have for yourself. You say, but I like it. And he says, but I don't, right? So let's deal with it and let it go. And that's how you know. And that's how revival, I believe, really takes root and really begins to spread when in response to God's blessing in response to God's mercy. When that pressure, the Holy Spirit's pressure of conviction falls, you go, yeah, I'll let it go. For, for Christ's sake, I'll let it go. The conviction of sin is specific, and I believe that it is only when we do that. When I'm willing to do that, when you are as well, when God's dealing with us individually or he's dealing with us together, it's only then that the fourth sign of the real deal, the fourth sign that revival has come, can even begin to happen. Because it's this, the fourth sign this passage gives us that revival is the real thing is that a sense of hope begins to emerge. Hope rises from the ashes of conviction and sin and destruction. Listen again to verses 8 and 9. Again, this is the king speaking, issuing his proclamation to the whole city. It says, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call, earn, call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? Verse 9. God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Can I ask you a question? Where did he ever get the idea God would do that? Where did the king of Nineveh, a pagan... Never had anything to do with the true and living God. Known him for about six and a half minutes at this point. Where did he ever get the idea that God might not destroy them after all? Certainly didn't get it from Jonah. Jonah's message was simple. 40 days, y'all are going down. We see no condition. We see no caveat. We see no, oh, but by the way. Now, maybe it was there, but the Bible doesn't say that. Where did the king ever get the idea that God might not do what God said 
he was going to do. How did, here's my question. How did hope enter the equation? And the only explanation, again, if you look at what's here, and then you put that in the context of the rest of Scripture, there's only one reasonable, I think possible, explanation, which is that it was a divine revival work of the Holy Spirit, putting something into the heart of this king that before he knew the Lord was not there before, and it's called hope. Because that's what Jesus Christ does when he enters in a life, right? Isn't that what he did for you? When you trusted Christ, you went from hopeless to hopeful, to no purpose, to eternal purpose, from eternal death to eternal life. Hope. And, and, and that's not my opinion. That's not like my best stab at it. That's what the Bible says. In fact, if you go, you don't need to turn there, but I want you to mark down Romans 15, 13. The Apostle Paul says it. As clear as anywhere in the Scripture, this principle, this truth can be found because he says this, Romans 15, 13. He writes to the Romans. He says, may, here's what he calls God, the God of hope. Huh. He's the God of hope. He's a God of a lot of things. He is also including the God of hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that, here it is, you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope is not self-generated. Hope is spirit-generated. Hope is imparted by the Spirit of God in the life of someone who knows and has surrendered to him. And Paul says, he's the God of hope, and he can cause you to abound in hope. That means to overflow, to have more hope than enough, more than you've ever had before. And he can do that, and he does it one way, through the presence and the power and the ministry of his Holy Spirit. And you know revival has taken root, even if it's just in your own heart, when hope begins to emerge from the ashes. And I can tell you, this is something that in my years of walking with the Lord, I've experienced, perhaps you have too. My experience is no better or worse than anybody else's, but it happened recently, I'll tell you about it. Happened last fall, not that long ago. I've told you a lot about the, 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 the renewal conference, the national renewal conference, where I really, where we dug into this theme of revival and that our series of revival sort of birthed and talked to you a lot about some of the things that I, I learned and, and, and that God sort of showed me from his word and did for me there. And a lot of objective truths and principles that out of that national renewal conference last September that, that God sort of placed on my heart. But what I haven't told you so far is the more personal side, which is that when we went to that, it was a three-day conference out in Denver last September. I went to that conference extremely discouraged extremely discouraged i hadn't shared that with a lot of people you know we all have our and we all have our seasons of discouragement you know it's just one of those things and it's like you begin to add up i was looking at the situation of our nation we were six or seven weeks out of the election and as we all know everything was a mess and chaotic and you're like is there any hope you know, I'm looking at some stuff in our church and, and, and just burdens and needs and people going through tough stuff. And eventually, when you get enough of those phone calls and read enough of those emails and have enough of those conversations, you get burdened. There's stuff going on in our, you know, our family with people we care about and love going through tough times. And, and again, that's not unique to me. You know what that's like. You look at the nation, you look at the church, you look at your life, you look at your family, you're like, stop, right? <laughs> enough. Discouraged and, and, and fearful and wondering, you know, what do I do with all this? I'm really excited to be here, but I'm kind of running on empty. And here's the thing. That's why I tell you that. At the end of those three days, not one thing that was burdening me changed. Okay? Our nation didn't get its problem solved in three days' time. Nobody called me from church saying, hey, we solved this problem. Didn't get any phone calls like that. Nothing in our family with people we care about and love who are going through tough stuff. None of those things eased up a bit in, in 72 hours' time. But by the end of those three days, as, as people would ask me there, and I came back here, and here's the question we always get, what'd you get out of the conference, 
right? What did you get out of it? My first answer, and, and I was willing to tell this and happy to tell this, I said, I said, I don't know what happened, but God restored my hope. I don't know when he did it. I don't know how he did it. I just know that he did it, and it wasn't my imagination. And not one outside particular has changed. But the God of hope had refilled me with joy and peace and was causing me to abound in hope once again. And there's only one way he does that, by the power of the what? Holy Spirit. Now, why do I take the time to tell that to you? So I want to tell you a story about me? No, because here's the principle. Because what happened to me can happen to you. But it happens, I believe, best. And it happens most when we as the people of God are together. Okay? When we come together as the people of God, believing in Jesus Christ. Yeah, listen, I know it because I know for some of you, I may not know for all of you, for some of you, that's the only reason or the biggest reason you come back here every Sunday. It's like, I just got to get a little more hope. I don't really care what we sing. I'm not really concerned what we're preaching about, but I need to be where God is at work so he can restore my hope for another week, right? You've been there. And if you haven't, you will be. And that's, that's okay. That's how God works. But God, and I, I can't define it, I can't put it in a principle on the screen, but I can tell you this, there's just something special God does in the hearts of his people when they come together in his name, in repentant humility, in honesty and in brokenness, without their agenda, without trying to convince everybody else what they should think or believe or how they should vote or whatever. Here's how to solve your problems. No, let's just get honest before the Lord. Let's just go before Jesus Christ and He'll renew your hope. I'm, I'm here to tell you he'll do it. I know he's done it for you. You're, you're saying, yeah, again today, Lord, would be great. All right. You're in the right place. We may fall on our faces musically or in preaching, but the Holy Spirit has it all under control. And he knows what to do. And when God's people come together and they get honest and broken before him, when we let the, the playing field be level and the conviction of sin be specific and we don't continue to resist and say, yeah, God, but hope emerges. That's where revival takes root, okay? That's where it begins to spread. Lots of things happen when God's people come together. There's lots of good reasons. I just think that's one of the best because hope is something all of us need most, all the time. And when you put those things together, those signs, those signals, those evidences that this was the real thing, the word of God was central, the playing field is level, the conviction of sin is specific, and the sense of hope begins to emerge. You get down to the fifth and final thing in this passage, and it's what the whole thing's all about. You've heard me say it a thousand times already in the past five weeks, God's mercy is magnified. You know it is the real thing when the mercy of God is being magnified. You know, verse 10 Verse 10, you may not know this, some of you do, stresses a lot of people out, okay? Verse 10 stresses a lot of people out when they read in their Bible that when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do what he said he was going to do. Now, that's what my Bible says, the New American Translation. The New Living Translation says God changed his mind. If you've got the King James Version, it is something even more dramatic than that. Anybody got the King James and tell me what the word is? Then God says he repented. God repented? Whoa! Did God sin? Did God do something wrong? And people read that and they stress out and they write books over it and they write blogs over it and they argue about it and they go to seminary and try to figure it out. How did God repent? I'm kind of stressed out. 
that God would have to do that. What does that mean? It blows my theology. Well, can we talk? All right. If this morning, you may not be among the theologically stressed out over this, but maybe some of you are. So in order not to single out those of you who are, let's all do something together, all right? Just for fun. Take a deep breath, right? Let it out. Now here's my admonition. Get over it. (laughs) Just get over it. Give you three reasons why. First of all, grammatically. When verse 10 says, and again, I've told you over and over, I don't know Hebrew, so I'm trusting those who are far smarter than I am. But in the Hebrew, when verse 10 says that the people of Nineveh repented and turned from their wicked way, it's translated a couple of different ways. But when they turned from their wickedness, and then in the next phrase it says that God changed his mind, in the Hebrew, it is not. Everybody say, it's not the same word. Say it, say the same word. Sorry, I didn't set you up very well for that one. It's not the same word, okay? One means to turn from sin, It means I was doing wickedness and I'm going to stop doing wicked things. The other simply means change his mind. And that goes to the second, from the grammatical to the very practical reason why this does not need to stress you out that it says God changes mind because he's God, secondly, and he can change his mind if he wants to. He really can. He's God. I'm not. And if God says I change my mind, we're going to let him change his mind, all right? and not dispute. And I know that sounds utterly simplistic, but it's a fact. If you're almighty God, eternal, almighty, invisible, God only wise, you can change your mind if you want to. And who are we to answer back and tell him he can't? Now, here's the, maybe the, what might call the devotional or the applicational reason why we don't need to be stressed out about that. And it's this, because, because God changed his mind. Because it says, my Bible says, God relented and did not do, bring the destruction he said he was going to do. The reason he did that, listen, okay, is because it springs from the very character of who our God is. And and, and it's consistent with the very theme of this entire book, that he is a God of incredible mercy, of endless, relentless, in this case, surprising compassion and action. And he did it, the reason he did it is because without violating his holiness, without violating his truthfulness, he decided to show mercy on a city that had repented. His endless, relentless compassion in action. Bottom line, in verse 10, God did something he didn't have to do. He'd already sent Jonah their way with a message, and the entire city had, we would say, gotten saved. They were rescued from slavery to sin. Their hearts were changed, their sin was forgiven, and their eternal destination was now secure. They'd experienced revival, and that's mercy enough, amen? That's mercy. But what did God want to do? God wanted to magnify his mercy. I want to show you just how great my mercy is. I want to show you how deep and wide and amazing my mercy is. And now that I've saved you, you know what? I'm going to let you survive. I'm going to let you survive. Because, think about it, by letting the people of Nineveh who got saved, got revived, stick around. What could they do for the rest of their lives? Magnify God's mercy. Like Jonah, they had a story to tell. We were going down this track. We sang it earlier. I once was lost in darkest night, thought I knew the way. Sin that promised, joy in life, had led me to the grave. But then, but then God, but then God saved. Then God showed mercy. And he saved us and he let us live. And, and they could. We don't know if they did but we know that now they could. They had a story of mercy to tell, and by sticking around Nineveh a little while longer, they could magnify that mercy for anyone 
who'd listen. And the bottom line this morning is this. If, listen now. If God can do that in Jonah, and God can do that in Nineveh, he can do it in you. He can do it among us. He can do it here. If he can revive that city, if he can use that rebellious, wayward prophet, he can revive and use us to magnify his mercy too. What he's looking for is an open, humble heart. A heart willing to say, as we sang again earlier, Lord, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. And sometimes that's just that's a call for self, I mean, it's a cause for rejoicing that God can use me, but it's a call to self-examination as well and say, but if I'm not being revived, if, if I'm lacking in hope, if I'm not really sort of tracking, you know, 100%, really just doing, you know, moving forward, it's, could it be one of these things? God's Word's really not central. It's there on the shelf, but it's never open in, in my heart. Ted reminded us of that earlier, the, the incredible precious value of hiding God's Word in our heart. Could it be that the way I look at the world, the playing field's not level. I just think some people are more deserving of salvation and grace and mercy than others. Well, Jesus doesn't. But I've got a, a pride issue. Is it a specific sin issue? Maybe there is a very specific, and God's pressure is on your heart today going, that thing, it's in your hands. You're going to leave it here today. Rise and walk once again in newness of life. It's not until we are willing to let God have his way, the Holy Spirit do his thing, that that hope can arise and the mercy can be magnified. But I think what this story tells us is that if we will respond to him in that way, we will respond to his mercy and let him use our ransomed lives in any way he chooses, God's mercy will be magnified. Jesus Christ will be glorified. The Holy Spirit will renew our hope once again. Because you see, today's big idea is this. It is that Jesus Christ can start a revival anywhere. Jesus can start a revival anywhere. He did it in Jonah, in the belly of a whale. He did it in Nineveh, one of the most wicked cities that history has ever uncovered. He's done it before. He can do it again. And he can do it in me and you. Father, don't let us this morning forget, refuse, or shrug our shoulders and walk away from the offer of mercy that is on the table, not because I said so, but because your mercies are new every morning, because your mercies are endless and you're full of grace and compassion, slow to anger and filled with loving kindness. Father, some of us are, are tracking with you, we're seeking after you, and Lord, we stumble and we fail in many ways, but the, the ambition, the direction of our life is, is toward Christ and and it's grateful. And Father, keep us on that track. Renew our strength and our hope for another day and another week. Father, others of us, though, we've got some stuff to deal with. We do not have revival-ready hearts. And while Jesus can do a revival anywhere, Lord, there's, there's stuff that you want us to just hand back over to you. Father, I don't know any hearts here, but you know every heart here. You know what we need. You know what we're holding on to. And you know how through your Holy Spirit to apply the mercy and the grace, the endless, relentless, surprising compassion of God to each of our hearts. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would do that. That we would grapple with the things that we have heard, not that I've said, but that your word says. That we would respond not to the voice of the preacher, but to the pressure of the Spirit, who even when brings us to sorrow, it's always so that we might repent and walk again in newness of life. Father, take the things of truth spoken this morning and seal them to our hearts and take everything else and just let it slip away 
so that we leave attentive to Jesus only in whose name we pray. Amen.